Your spirit does not enable us to understand and delight in it. So help us, Lord. Open it up to us. You have revealed so many wonderful things. And things, Lord, that we haven't even pondered. We pray, especially on this doctrine that is being abused by our generation, a doctrine of the church. Help us to understand it clearly and to honor you. Oh, Lord, hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 of Matthew. Then we'll move to Ephesians 5. After that, I remind you, this is God's word. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Please turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 22 to 33. Now this is a passage used often at weddings. And I often use this passage. But you cannot rightly understand this whole issue of husband and wife. Unless you understand the relationship between Christ and the church. That serves as a foundation of Paul's ethical exhortation here. Again, God's word, chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that and it refers to Christ and the church. However let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord be pleased to use his word. To instruct us, move our souls, and feed us. Go back, if you would, to chapter 16. Today, we're going to focus on chapter 16. Uh, In the upcoming week, I will deal with 
God willing, chapter 5 of Ephesians. We're in a series on uh, just basic Christian doctrines. We're near the end. I'm actually kind of surprised at how uh, Bob Inc. kind of summarizes two major things by two chapters, a doctrine of the church and eschatology. And it's two uh, relatively short chapters in which he deals with this. And yet, you can have a whole class in seminary on the doctrine of the church, on ecclesiology. It's an important doctrine. But I want to think about this. I want us to consider what that means, what, what the church means, and how you view the church. Is it according to what Jesus teaches, or is it according to your own desires? And let me start off by kind of considering something in our culture. As we know that we are a consumer-driven generation. We get to choose the restaurants we want, the movies we wish to see, the stores we wish to patronize, the vacation spots we want to visit. And much of these decisions depend upon one's income, but we still make the final choice. You can go to a restaurant, and if you both love it, you and, uh, you and your wife, wonderful. If not, you can say, you know, that's the last time. I remember my wife and I, we, we visited this Mexican restaurant, and it had just opened up, and I think we were about the only people in there. We never went back. It wasn't that great. And guess what? It's closed. It's a consumer-driven generation. We get to pick and choose. If I like it, I'll go back. If I don't, I don't have to. We go to a grocery store, and we can pick and choose between brands. Not that you only have one kind of bread. you got many kinds of bread. And you get to choose generic brands to name brands. Organic to mass-produced food. Vegetables already cut up or buying whole vegetables. Prepared foods or getting fresh ingredients to make your own food. The point is, you and I get to pick and choose everything. And we are driven by that. We're very used to it. Nobody tells me what to buy. I can buy what I want. And that's something that's very freeing in America. But what about when it comes to churches? Who determines what she is to be like? Are we supposed to pick and choose according to our tastes? According to our likes and dislikes? More importantly, are the church leaders supposed to cater to the people's desire? Like, are we supposed to look at it as managers? What is it they like that we can present to them? Do we succumb to their cravings, to their desires, to their whims and fancies? These are legitimate questions because actually some people say yes. Some people will argue that you need to cater the church to what the people want. I submit to you, you can't. The church is Christ's church. He determines her identity, her ordinances, her worship, and everything. I remember many years ago at a different church. I had more hair and I was young. And I remember this one lady really loved the church I was working. I wasn't a pastor. And we got to talk about many things. She said, you know what, I really love this church. You know, but there's just one thing if you guys did this, it would be a perfect church. I said, what is it? She said, you guys don't have altar calls. I said, really? 
She said, yeah, if you just had that, that would just be perfect. Because she knew we were evangelical, we preached the gospel, she's from a Baptist background. If you just had an altar call, it would be just right. And I asked her one simple question. Where in the Bible does it have that? And she gave me that look like, oh. Because, see, that's the question that matters. Where in the Bible does it require that? She had no answer. The churches are vastly different. But on a certain level, she should be consistently the same. Because the church of Christ is Christ's church. He is her head and he determines her ordinances, her officers, her ministries and her sacraments. His word must be preached. His will determines her life and his spirit guides and supports her. Christ tells her to exercise discipline, to administer the sacraments. That is, to baptize and to administer the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. He determines those things. What is Jesus concerned about when it comes to churches? And one of the best ways to understand that is if you look at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. The seven churches of Asia Minor. As you look at that, how many of the churches... Did he criticize for her budget, her youth ministry, her building project, her lighting, her audio system, her music ministry, her soup kitchen, her garage sales, her vacation Bible school, her numerous target ministries for the young, old, single, couples, divorcees, senior citizens, retirees, athletes, high school, young adult, college ministries. How many of them were faulted for not having them? How often did he say this one thing you lacked? A worship leader. Each church, if you look at it, was challenged in two areas. Their doctrine, how, fat, how faithfully they held to it. And their life, how faithfully they followed what his word required. That's what he's concerned about. That's our Lord's concern. So when we come to this, as we look at this passage, we want to look at three simple points. And I want us to see how important the church is to Jesus Christ himself. And I can say this honestly. Earlier in this week, you see, I'm going through Bobbing and I'm saying, oh, the doctor of the church. Boring. I lectured on that for years. I love to study it, but there's another part of me that said, oh, what do I say? But I began to think about this and I realized it's what Jesus teaches is very different from what the world teaches about the church. I want us to see in the next two weeks how important the church is to Christ himself. The church is his business, as it were. That's his business and concern and the most important institution, if we can use that word, the most important institution in the whole world to him. Nothing comes close. So let's look at this passage. What do we have here? We have this scenario where there are different expectations or different understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So these are high and lofty things. Is that who Jesus is? But Jesus is more concerned about Peter and the disciples. But who do you say I am? 
And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, which means you are the Messiah, the one that's been expected in the Old Testament, the son of the living God. That's entirely different from anything else the other people have said. Better than John the Baptist, better than Jeremiah, better than one of the prophets or even Elijah. The son of the living God, the Messiah, the very thing or the very person all the prophets were prophesying about. And what is amazing is, Peter came up with that with his own mind. No. Notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That is to say, you didn't come to it on your own understanding or some intellectual mind gave you information about this. It didn't come from human creatures. How did he come to this understanding? He says, but my father who is in heaven. This was a work of God's revelation in the heart of Simon. Simon Barjona. That Peter understood who this person was. This historical person standing before him was none other than the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. None other than the son of the living God. And that is a work of God. We need to understand its significance. To be able to see Christ for who he is, to value him, and to notice the significance of who he is, it is not a work of nature. It's a work of God's spirit in the heart of men and women. That many of you will know, will say the right words about Christ. But do you love him? Do you value him? Do you see him for what it is? This is something that God had done, God had done in Peter's heart. You know, if you believe there was a flood coming, you have to see what actions you're going to take. If we knew there was a flood coming at this church, and everyone knows there's a flood coming, and our church is going to be wiped away, you go, oh, well, let's see what happens. And we just kind of disregard it. You know what? You're not taking it seriously. But if you thought it was going to happen, you would do something. And that's the same thing with understanding Christ. If this is really true, it affects everything you do. And Peter is understanding that. And is now giving his life to follow him. That's, this is a work of God in him. But you would think, blessed are you, this would be significant. You finally understood because my father has revealed this to you. And they get in there and he is blessed and wonderful. But there's something else Jesus says in view of this. You made this understanding or you made this confession. And this is what I'm going to do. Notice what he says. I tell you, you are Peter. You are Petros. And on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What an astonishing response to Peter's confession. That you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to focus on verse 18 today. The first point I want to bring out is that the church is Christ's church. Second is Christ will build his church. 
and Christ's church will endure. The first is Christ, the church is Christ's church. I will build my church. It's his church. And this is probably one of those things that we can say it easily, but we don't understand its profound nature. And I struggle with this as a pastor. I remember many years ago in South Africa, I lectured on this very point. And even to this day, it still haunts me on the words that I use, the possessive pronoun. Oh, that's John's church uh, over there across the street. That's where he goes. That's his church. But my church is over there. We've used these possessive pronouns to say it's my church, but it's not. I could say the church that I attend in Warminster, it's Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church. But to say my church, you see, that raises all kinds of questions. Is it my church? It's not. It's actually Christ's church. Now, we recognize you have to use that at times, but it's significant because, you see, it betrays possibly a misunderstanding. Because if I say it's my church then I can demand from it things I want. But if I say it's Christ's church, then it's a thing entirely different. He determines it. And I attend that church that's his. The word church has a broad meaning in in the Bible, especially the way Jesus is using it. It represents all his people. Uh, we don't have to go into etymology of all of that, but uh, there's also the word can have a narrow meaning, meaning the church in Ephesus, the local visible church. But sometimes it means the church at large, all his people. Jesus is building that church. All true local congregations are Christ. Irrespective of the denomination, pastor, size, ethnic makeup, building, or anything. If they love him, if they preach him, if they follow his word, that's his church. He is building them. He sent his spirit to the church and fills them. To besmirch her, to belittle her, to speak ill of her, is to persecute her, is to persecute Christ. It's to attack him. Remember, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you. It's these people. But Christ is so identified with his church. To touch them is to touch him. That's his point. Which Paul would learn and teach. And why that's significant, it's his church. That means he will protect it and will unpack some of those things. This is his treasure possession. We must not be indifferent to that truth. I don't know how many of you have seen this. I've seen it several times. About this Ukrainian mother. I don't know if it was a bomb or shooting when the Russians were attacking. When she saw that coming, she instinctively threw herself on her son. And covered the baby to protect him. And she got hurt, but she survived. But she did it because she loved her child. And they have a picture with her nursing the baby, and she has a bandage on her, but she's surviving. She's become quite a celebrity. But that's what mothers do for their babies. How much do you think Christ would do for his church? He loves her. Christ loved the church. 
and gave himself up for her. He will keep her and protect her, will be devoted to her because he loves her. It's his church. Now, that does not mean every local visible church is part of that true church. If they do not preach his word faithfully, rightly administer sacraments and ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and exercise church discipline in accordance with his word, they're not part of his church. You can have a full church building with a lot of things going on, but if these things are not found, it's not his church. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. That is why when it comes to church, you must make sure she's part of the true church. It's his church. Throughout history, our Lord has removed the lampstand from many places. In Asia Minor, many of the churches are gone. In Europe, where it used to be the bastion of Protestant orthodoxy, has become eminently secular. In the vast areas of northern Africa and uh, in, in the Middle East and everything, where the churches flourish, now Islam has taken over so much. Not every local visible church is part of this true church. That's not Christ's church. And even as we look at this congregation of the saints assembled, we must treat her as Christ's. It should affect our prayers. It should affect our concerns. It should affect our affections and interests for her. CCPC is worth, is not worth existing if she is not Christ. If we deviate from his word, all that Christ commands, and and we were to actually flourish in spite of that. Let's say we grew and we we expanded the church, but we deny the word and we've gone so many different ways, but we are flourishing then we're not Christ's church. Christ knows his own because he's building her. And by God's grace, may we be faithful unto the end. Many of you have close families or are close family friends with other families. Our family... Uh, are close friends with the McKelveys. Uh, their children, our children played when they were young and they're still friends, many of them, to this day. And because of our loyalty to our friendship to Bob and Sharon, if their children are in need, I feel beholden to their children. I, I feel obligated. For their sake, I'm going to take care of them if it comes to me. Now, they're all young adults for the most part, and I don't have to deal with that. But you do it for your friend's sake. And if a daughter were to move in and we had to take her, we would treat her just like she was my daughter. And I would protect her and do everything for him, for her. And we do that as friends. We do that as human beings. But when it comes to the church, you're to love her because it's his church. You're to nourish her and care for her and pray for her and be devoted to her because it's his church. But here's where the analogy falls apart. Whereas I'm doing it out of a friendship for a friend, you're actually a member of that church. That church, those brothers and sisters are your brothers and sisters. Because you see, when you're united to Christ, you're united to one another. 
It's not bringing someone else's family into you. You're actually embracing them because Christ has brought them to the church. So do you look at the church as his? Or do you look at it as a consumer? Please understand the question. Do you look at the church as his church? Or do you look at it like a consumer? What's on sale today? What's in it for me today? Is that the way you look at it? Or is this where his ordinances exist? Is this Christ's church because his word is preached? Is that what you look at? Or do you look at it like, you know, I hate that color of that carpet. I don't know how they could just sit in there all day. There's some people that look at churches like that. Or do you come as a consumer or one who wants to be in his church? That you love her because you're united to Christ by faith. The church is Christ's church. The second point, I had no idea I went this long. The uh, second point is this. Christ will build his church. I will build my church. Not only is it his church, he's the one who's actually building it. He actually builds his church by his word and spirit. He uses his ministers to preach his word and draw men and women to himself. And so united to him, they're united to each other. And that's how he builds a church. He used his apostles in the beginning to build the church and then added unto the foundation through the various men he has appointed whom he has called to proclaim the gospel. By his word and spirit, he brings many people to himself. And that's where the churches pop up here and there. Notice how he builds a church. He'll build it on Peter and his confession. Look at the text. Now, this is not Peter exclusively. We'll talk about Roman Catholicism in a moment. But it's about the apostolic witness. You are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, there's a wordplay going on. And some people talk about the Aramaic and how the word is the same, etc. But Jesus is deliberately making this uh, kind of the word association. You're supposed to notice it. I will build my church. Why is he building it on Peter? Is it on him exclusively? No, absolutely not. Who revealed this to him? God the Father. Whom will Christ use to build his church? Peter and all the apostles. So Paul will say in Ephesians, uh, the, the church is built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. And Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's all Jesus is saying. And that's exactly what he does. The church is built with the apostolic witness and authority that he gave them. With all the authority he gave them, he's going to build a church and that's what he does. Peter serves as kind of first among equals in the beginning. But other apostles coming, James and John and others, they play a significant role. And then Paul would come along and God, Christ would use them to build his, excuse me, build his church. That's all he's teaching here. We don't have to be afraid of Roman Catholics who use this passage. This passage says absolutely nothing about apostolic succession, about papal infallibility, or Rome's exclusive authority. It says nothing about those things, and yet they get it from this passage. And so what does this teach us? That upon the very witness of these apostles and their confession that God has revealed, the church is built What does that mean? 
It means that the church is built upon God's revelation, on Christ's word. Each true member of the church of Christ is built upon confessing Christ, the true Christ, in accordance with his word. And the Spirit of God enables each believer to call him Lord and declare that Jesus is Lord. They all believe in the same Lord, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, that's what he does. He, it is that witness, the apostles who establish it, and we have that witness in his word. And upon this, the church is built. The church does not give the word. The word gives life to the church. There was no church without the word. Christ is the word, and it came and establishes the church. So without a true confession, a true declaration of God's revelation that we have in the Bible... There is no church. That's how Christ is building it, through His truth. By His word and spirit, that's what He does throughout the generations, forever and ever, until He returns. That's what He does. There's a mystery to this growth. It's an amazing thing. He brings this and that person to Himself. A small work could flourish. A large work can basically diminish or die out. Some would expand and others would contract. We don't know why or how that works. How is it now Christianity has moved to America and it may be going to South America and possibly Africa and possibly Asia? It was in, in different parts of the world, but it's shifting. Why? Because God, in his own sovereignty, is declaring his witness to the various nations. There's a mystery to that. But Christ is still building his church in China, in Africa, in South America, in America, in parts of Europe, in Ukraine, in Russia, in various places. We can't confine him. And we don't want to. But here's the one thing he does in building his church. He takes individuals and unites them to the body of believers. He takes individuals and unites them to the body of believers. And I can say this. If I were to talk to a man or a woman over the years, I've changed in this view over the years. I've become more convinced of this. If the person said they're a believer... And they're unwilling to be committed to the church for years and years and years. I would say, I, I doubt their profession. There's simply no way. God, Christ's way of building his church is take an individual, unite them to one another, and they gather in his presence. He does that throughout the Bible, and that's what he does throughout the history. That's what he does. There's no individual that just saved them by himself. He always draws them together. And heaven will be assembled in his presence. We're not going to zoom in there, having an iPad and doing this. We're not going to do that. We're going to be all assembled together. That's what he does. We're never alone. We were not created to be alone. He has a new community and new people, and they're all gathered in Christ's name. That is, in the church, they exercise their gifts to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another up, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens. That's where it happens. The gifts are given not so you can say, look what I got, so you can use it for the edification of the body of Christ. That's what Paul teaches throughout and throughout. The church that he builds is a corporate body. 
It's never just individuals on his own. Not only is it a mysterious thing, it's not an individual thing. There's an order to his church. The church of Christ, the church that he is building, he builds according to his word. His word guides her. His ordinances, sacraments, discipline, worship, those things determine the life of the church. He has gifted the church with preachers and ministers, a body of elders and deacons to oversee and care for the church. That's what he has. There's order to that. A church is not like just a conglomeration of people. You know, what do you want to do? We don't get to do that. It's his church, and he builds it his way, and his word regulates the life and ministry of the church. Why is that so significant? That means as time changes, what the church is called to do has not changed. Do you know how many times over the years I've read something like this? Not in these words. But you know, we're a different generation. We are more visual. We are more auditory, whatever it is. And they want to change the structure and nature of the church. That preaching should no longer be a premium. So you have logo software. They want to view, they want to show all these kind of video things that you have in worship service. There's nothing like that for it in the Bible. Culture changes, but what Christ has for his church doesn't change. That's how he builds it. Through the preaching of the word, through his word and spirit, he gathers people. And he has the ordinances, how they're to worship, how they're to gather the office and everything. He determines it. Not me, not you. He does. So if someone told me, I am the archbishop of the church, I would say, we're in the Bible. I'm an elder in the church, I see that in the Bible. I'm the deacon in the church. I see that in the Bible. I am the super deacon of the church. I don't see that in the Bible. But it's significant. It is amazing the different titles people have. Do you know in different parts of the world, people go around, there's the bishop of this and there's the apostle of that. There's elders and deacons. Those are the two officers he has given. So I, I have two, uh, another point, but I want to just end this point and. And help us to consider this. As a body of believers that Christ is building, are you part of that body that he is building? Or are you a tick? What does a tick do? It latches on, and it sucks blood, and it drops off. It's contributed nothing, but it drained and it dies. Now, I say that. I'm not trying to be graphic and everything. You, you should just see these big ticks in South Africa. They're graphic, all right. But I'm not talking about that. But you know what a tick does? It latches on and it disappears. After it gets its stuff, it might lay eggs and everything. But here's the point. There are some people who are not really part of the church. They're, they're a tick. They'll go from one congregation to another, left and right. And all they do is suck, suck, suck. And drain but if you're part of the church he's building, you're a vibrant part of it. You use your gifts to support and encourage her, to honor Christ in it. And one of the things that I've been struck by is as we see what's going on in Ukraine. We know that brothers and the pastors and everything, they've been dispersed. They've been scattered. They can't gather like they used to. 
We know that Russians are bombing civilians and everything. So they're spread out. Why is this happening? We don't understand it all, of course. But one thing I do know. That even as believers are being spread out and dispersed in Ukraine, they will gather. He will give them a preacher in this area or that area. They will gather. True believers always gather. That's how he built his church. It may be they become witnesses in Poland, in Romania, uh, or Moldova, or different places they're going to. That may be where he, uh, where he would extend his church. I don't know. But he will always build his church, and I can be sure of that. You can be sure of that. In the upcoming weeks, we'll deal with Ephesians, how he loves the church, how the gates of hell cannot prevail over it. We'll deal with those things in the upcoming weeks. Let me close us in prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks that you love your people, and Christ is the Lord of the church, and he will care for her and nourish her. We pray that we might all be part of it genuinely and vitally by the work of your Spirit. Lord, help us to love her as Christ loved the church. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Please turn with me a wonderful hymn to 270 in your blue Trinity hymnal.